Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer, and welcome back to The Crux. I think this is our 37th episode. Yeah. Uh, hey, Mike, how are you doing? Good, good. Good, good. To, good to hear from you just again. Just got out of captivity. Mike's been in quarantine in, in Canada. He's still looking good here. You can't see him, but he's looking quite healthy. And so, hey, look, let's let's get right into the news. One topic I wanted to talk about, Mike, is a really amazing story that BuzzFeed News put together about money laundering which is a complex topic, but uh, let me try to simplify it. And what I want to talk about is media relations, which you taught here at BU. And of course, you've, you've practiced for many years. It, it's called... I didn't this perfect. Buzzfeed... <laughs> I well, there is, there, is no, there is no perfection in media relations, unfortunately. It's called the story, The FinCEN Files Investigation. It's based on thousands of suspicious activity reports. That's a report that actually goes into the U.S. government and other U.S. government documents that BuzzFeed News shared. BuzzFeed says it offers a view into global financial corruptions, the banks enabling it, and government agencies not doing anything or little to stop it. So money laundering may not sound like a terrible crime, but it is a crime that enables other crimes, such as human trafficking, drug and gun trafficking, business corruption, and so on. BuzzFeed and the other news organizations gave each of the banks, and there are you know, several dozen that are named in this. These are banks that received allegedly dirty money. And we'll post the link to the story on the, on the Crux website. And so on its website, it lists every response in one file and non-response from banks such as J.P. Morgan Chase, Deutsche Bank, HSBC, Standard Chartered, Citibank, and so on. I have never seen a collection like this of so many statements on, in a crisis and issues management in one place. It's, it's fascinating to me. And it really, if you read through them, reveals the corporate culture of these banks. Some of the statements oh, yeah. are good. Yeah. Some of the statements are not so good. There, some, you know, are specific to the question. Some of them might have been better off saying no comment. <laughs> <laughs> totally. That's not usually what we, we, we tell our clients to do. And others are sort of corporate bromides, et cetera, et cetera. So most of them say we're committed to financial transparency and so on. Looking through this, this is a you know a little thing that I've got a, a chip on my shoulder about here. Are we good at media relations today in, in big companies and, and elsewhere? I don't think that we're terrific at media relations. And oftentimes part of the challenge is, you know, every executive talks, every executive writes. We all communicate. And so therefore we think we're experts. There are some of us like you and I that kind of have learned, you know, what works, what doesn't work. We've analyzed what's the best way to navigate a crisis and so on. And to your point, I think that all of these statements say a lot about corporate culture. And I would say the lion's share of this isn't great. The lion's share of this are people holding their cards close, being yes. fearful of the outside world. And, and as they do that, what they don't realize is that they are displaying to the outside world with those responses that maybe they're not, they're not playing up and up. You know, right. that, that, that there's something that's being hidden and purposely so. 
And that's unfortunate because I don't think that was probably the intent of some of these communications departments. But contrast Deutsche Bank, which seemingly provided a lot more information. Um, And admittedly, they're also being asked about information in a space that's somewhat protected by law, particularly in the United States. I mean, these SARs, the suspicious activity reports, because oftentimes you're giving them to the U.S. government so they can investigate, and sometimes there are collaborations going on, they're rarely made public, right? right? There are other examples of this, like in the healthcare industry. Yes. You know, or other parts of, of financial institutions where you cannot provide information that breaks with privacy of the individual. So, but I think that in these kinds of situations, you're better off responding, and you're better off responding if there are spaces you can't go into, provide the specific rationale why. Exactly. And if you can't do that, you're going to take it in the pants in terms of your yeah, and and tell people what you know about yeah. this, Mike. You know, and almost a lot of them begin with the commitment statements, which I think are fairly useless in this kind of situation. Although yeah. I understand why they're included, they're not persuasive. I guess is what I would say. Well, well, and, and what they do is is when you provide kind of that that, that corporate policy statement ah, as opposed ah. to answering the question. Yes. Um, Again, it looks like you're trying to sweep this under the rug. It looks like, you know, it's painful. It's painful to watch as a communicator. Yeah. You know me. I'm I'm, I love language. Mm -hmm. And and I really hope our listeners will go and take a look at these. Actually, I'm going to talk about this in my crisis class today with with our students. Just go in and take a look at the language. It's not the way anybody speaks in the world. If you know, if you were explaining this situation to you know a friend, or it 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 in no way resembles human language. And and what you and I both taught, uh, both within corporations as well as in the classroom, is answer the damn question. Exactly. Start start with that. (laughs) Uh, use common language. And if there's certain things that you're uncomfortable or you can't have a rationale for it. Yes. So by the way, I found this article, this BuzzFeed thing. uh, And it's interesting how they've shared, you know, this is investigative journalists coming together across organizations. So that's something for communicators to watch as well, too. I, I found it in Don Venata Jr.'s Sunday newsletter, which is Sunday Long Reads. Yeah. And it's it's long it's pieces. I, I, it's a great read. Highly recommend it. We'll put the link to that. Okay. So last week we had Oscar Suris, formerly of Wells Fargo on the Crux. Lots yeah. of great feedback on Oscar, by the way, including his three lessons. I've gotten some notes uh, on that. But I just want to go quickly into one item that relates to Wells Fargo that I saw this week. And it's on the bank CEO apologizing for something he said about the challenges in diversifying the bank's w- workforce. Um, I think it, it, you pronounce it Scharf, Charles Scharf, yep. yep. apologized for his comments that the bank wasn't meeting diversity goals because of a shortage of black talent. He said, quote, I am sorry my comment has been misinterpreted. The financial industry and our company do not reflect the diversity of our population. We at Wells Fargo are committed to driving change and improving diversity and inclusion. Like, you're deeply involved in diversity efforts in at the corporate level. This quote-unquote pipeline argument comes up a lot, including in the public relations profession. Is it an excuse and should the Wells Fargo CEO have apologized? In some instances, there are 
pipeline shortages, but they tend to be very, very specific, right? Yeah. You know, there's only so many trained engineers. There are only so many people with PhDs in, in chemistry. I mean, I watched my, my daughter some years ago go across and get her diploma. And that day, there were 60 some odd individuals that got their PhD in chemistry from Penn State. Very few were women. And oh, yeah. very, very few were Americans. Very few were diverse Americans. Mm-hmm. So there are legitimate places, but to make that broadly and for an organization like a financial institution like Wells Fargo, where there's a multiplicity of different kinds of jobs and entry-level jobs, as well as mid-level jobs and higher, I think that sometimes the pipeline argument is a little bit of a smokescreen mm-hmm. or, you know, we really haven't done enough. And that's probably what he should have started off with. Exactly. You know, that, that, you know we're really committed to this, but at the same time, we know we haven't done enough. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and I think from a diversity perspective, we have to, we also have to watch inside companies uh, what the remit or the job description asks for. Yes. I can remember being inside of a company a few years ago where they asked essentially that they wanted someone who was a digital native who had 20 years experience. You know, those two things <laughs> were, you know, complete opposites. You couldn't achieve that, right? Right, exactly. Um, on one hand, I don't want to totally dis the pipeline argument, but I do think that the pipeline argument too often becomes a crutch for people who and organizations that haven't done enough. Yeah. And and to this CEO's credit, it does appear, reading some other things that Wells Fargo is doing, that they are trying to address the pipeline yeah, issue. Absolutely. But absolutely. it it was inartful. You know, and we all say things that we later regret. Exactly. So yeah. Moving quickly, I found something this week that I was just sort of really, I found really curious and sort of amazing, which shows you, it tells you a lot about my life, doesn't it, Mike, that I'm amazed by things like this. Anyway, it's Kroger's COVID crisis blueprint. And again, I found this in another newsletter. And, you know, I teach crisis management at BU, and, and so I'm, I'm looking around for this stuff. I found this thing from Kroger, which is the largest supermarket chain in the country, it has 2,800 retail stores in 35 states. It put out a 71-page blueprint for other companies and its suppliers on how to navigate the COVID pandemic. It's called Sharing What We've Learned, a Blueprint for Businesses, and it has tips on maintaining a clean and well-stocked store environment. Insights from Kroger's 35 manufacturing facilities, sourcing insights from Kroger's experts on things like how to keep high demand products in the store, and communications tips and templates for communicating with internal and external stakeholders. They even had signage, right? They had signage and everything, right? You know, so like, you know, one-way aisles, social distancing signs. They even had template in-store audio announcements on social distancing. You know, those those grocery store announcements that you hear. It's 15-page communications section covers crisis team responsibilities, key messages, how to develop a crisis plan, roles and responsibilities, channels to use internally and externally. I've never seen a company do this in the middle of a crisis, sharing what they've learned. So obviously this took a lot of work. I imagine it wasn't inexpensive. Why do you think Kroger did this? 
Well, well, first of all, you you and I have talked about this before, but you know, crises are are, are times when the best excel, right? Right, right. Uh, I, I mean, it gives people an opportunity to shine. Sometimes people wither, you know, in the midst of a crisis yes. and don't show up. But I, this is a this is a terrific example. I think the reason probably for doing it is to give even greater comfort to their suppliers, greater comfort to their customers, and greater comfort to their to their shareholders, quite frankly. Yeah. You know, that we know what we're doing, we have a process. I think on one hand, yeah, they're sharing it with the broadest of humanity. My guess is it was spirited by this by this thought of let's reach our stakeholders in a really smart way, but yes. also it's thoughtful in terms of what we're able to present to the rest of society that an organization can really manage something like this. And and this is why we're navigating this perhaps better than others. I was impressed with it. They they had a concept called mixternal, mixture of internal and external. The one thing I would say about it, and I think you're totally right, supermarkets obviously essential during the pandemic. Yep. Obviously, they have very complex supply chains. And in a lot of cases, with factories shutting down, uh, manufacturing shutting down, uh, some of the products beyond their capability to control. So being honest and open about supply and that kind of thing is, is really important during crises. One thing I would criticize them for on the communications thing is, I do know that Kroger was criticized, stubbed its toe on some of its, how it treated essential workers, frontline workers mm -hmm. during the early days. Right. Of, of of the crisis, bonus pay, and then pulling it back, sick leave policies. But program. that might also be what prompted them to be more attentive. Totally. To back totally. My, my point is only that is useful. If you walk through that case on how, look, nobody, Kroger didn't cause the pandemic. Right. They didn't, you know, they didn't have a plan for this, I'm fairly sure. So what they learned as they went through those early days, I think would be quite helpful to other communicators yeah. from a case study standpoint. Okay. Yeah. Lastly, Mike, you know, we're entering the de presidential debate season here in the United States. Um, and so, yeah, and there'll be a series of those, uh, I guess, three planned currently. And a vice so, presidential one, too. And a vice, well, that one may be the most interesting one out of them all. And actually, I read a story yesterday on, on the Daily Beast, which is a, you know, fairly respected website, news website here in the U.S. Which candidate, Trump or... Trump or Biden is more likely to keel over during a debate. So, you know, <laughs> people are looking at this from all angles. But on the eve of this debate season, a story marvelously reported by The New York Times on Trump's taxes. is not going to dissect it here. But the one thing, you know, it showed that he hasn't paid. And this is an issue going back to since he was a candidate, his personal taxes since 2016. It showed that in 2016, 2017, that each year he paid a grand total of $750 in federal taxes. And you got to think some school teachers or bus drivers have paid yeah, more. Yeah, right? right. So I just looked at it. And, and again, uh, there are many, many more takeaways from this. And look, some of this is maybe all of it is legal, right? The carry forwards on losses from pre previous years. Business does this all the time. Although I do note that he deducted $70,000 for hairstyling. So uh, <laughs> I would say that was not money well spent, but nonetheless, what struck me was it's really complicated, the US tax code. You can't even begin to try to understand it, but the $750 a year in taxes, to your point, bus drivers, nurses, teachers, they all know what they pay, 
right? And it's probably more than the president. The more significant thing here is that this was an issue going back to 2016. He said he was going to release his taxes. He never did. He really hasn't since. He's used as kind of a shibboleth that he need not because he's currently going through an audit. Well, you know, that started with 2016. We're now at 2020. It'll be interesting to see how that becomes perhaps a campaign issue. The more mm-hmm. interesting question out of the report, I think, is, you know, it also shows him with a huge amount of debt. And the question sitting there as a president of the United States would be, you know, who is that debt owed to? Mm-hmm. And could that create any apparent risk, you know, to the nation as a consequence? Right. And that's debt that he personally guaranteed. Yeah. Back in 2010 or 2011, I can't remember now, I try to block it out, Mike. You know, we had at GE a big tax story right in the middle of tax season. The Times claiming we didn't pay any federal tax on $15 billion. Right. And profits. that was more of a, that was a carry forward issue, too, yeah, right? On, completely. On Most, losses. Yeah, on, on uh, credit losses at our financial businesses and some other things, things that Congress had passed, like investments in renewable energy, which provided a tax credit and you do it and then you get kicked for it. But what it really showed was if the story is understandable to working class people, it really hurts. Yeah. It really hurts. And I, I, I'm i not sure this is going to erode the 40% or so of people who support Trump. I do think it'll hurt him for the people who, if there's any left at this point, that are sort of in the middle. Yeah, although it, it's interesting, you know, in politics these days, there's always a crisis a week. Yes. And sometimes the latest crisis overrides the earlier yeah. one. So it's going to be uh, it's going to be an interesting political season. It will. It will. All right. So we have two amazing guests this week on The Crux, our 37th episode, two BU students. So let's go talk to them right now. Our guests today are two very talented young PR professionals, true innovators. During the past summer, as job offers were slow in coming, internships were being canceled across the board, our guests not only noticed that young talent was a bit in limbo with their lives, they also saw that a number of nonprofits and good causes were struggling as well. It is within that framework that Maya Malekian, a recent Boston University graduate, and Janine Lau a senior at Boston University's College of Communication, launched a firm, Empath Worldwide, a public relations agency that would do work for nonprofits using the talent of young professionals across the globe eager to build out their portfolios. Their exciting launch has been covered by PR Week and others with headlines like Young Pros Defy the Virus. So Maya and Janine, welcome to the Crux. Thank you. Thank you. Very welcome. Very excited to have this conversation. I'll let each of you kind of jump in here, but share with our audience how your idea for creating this agency, how did it all come together? Walk us through that process. So I'll get started. And then once Geneve comes into the picture, she can take it away. But essentially, this idea started off when 
life kind of flipped upside down for me and so many others of my colleagues, people I haven't even met yet, but I knew were in the same boat as me. We were all participating in the PRC's Agency Ready Certificate Program um, that was designed to kind of serve as a buffer or something to keep us busy and engaged in the industry while the industry was trying to adjust to the COVID-19 pandemic and all of our internships were halted and job offers were frozen. So as we tuned into the first webinar with Jim Joseph, who, who's now at McCann Health, he gave a really inspiring inaugural talk about empathy. And I had heard empathy throughout my time at BU studying PR and how that's a driving force in authentic communications. And to hear it once again from somebody who wasn't in this like calm bubble or who wasn't part of people that I've interacted with was really inspiring. And on top of that, to see so many students engage in that conversation, whether that be in the Zoom chat and giving, sharing their feedback or a group me that was created afterwards. Um, it was just really inspiring to see how empathy was really something people cared about, especially with everything happening in our world. So I thought, you know, it's unfortunate there's so many students who are passionate, trying and transformative moment of the industry and are really learning it in the moment. And so I just felt like there had to be a way we can kind of put these teachings, whether it be through PR council or school or just watching the news and, and trying to figure out what would we do in that situation that we should bring these parties together, give back. Not only should they have the opportunity to put their talents to work and their passions and skills, but they should also do so in a way that's contributing to what's happening in this moment. So I reached out to Janine, who was bold enough to hear me out. And I said, why don't we, you know, bring together these young PR professionals and put them with nonprofits and small businesses who are really, you know, trying to fight against the odds that are now stacked against them and really trying to communicate in a meaningful way. So then, Janine, feel free to take it away from there. <laughs> I think small businesses and nonprofits, in addition to being hit really hard with the pandemic, they're also really the lifeblood of these of communities all around the world, right? When we lose our connectiveness, our in-person interactions, we think about those small businesses and nonprofits that we always visited, people that are doing work in our communities, and we want them to be able to, you know, still stay afloat amongst this time because they do play a very critical role in, in each of these communities. And so they oftentimes when, you know, you're trying to keep a business afloat, communications is not at the forefront of what you're thinking about, but it is so important in a time like now where you need to have a, take a stand and have a say in issues that are happening in the world. So we thought, you know, empath is the perfect way to kind of bridge this gap and bring these two needs together. Hi, Geneva and Maya. This is Gary Sheffer. Neither of you took my classes at BU. Such shut, missed opportunity on your part. But I have Such to say, <laughs> but I have to say, really, how amazed I am at what you're doing. And I mean that sincerely. So Thank tell you. us about the work you're doing. These and, and a little bit more, are all of these PR professionals that are in Empath, are they BU grads or is it broader than that? Are there people that are, are not BU folks? I would truly say we really encompass the uh, worldwide aspect of Empath Worldwide. While we do have, you know, obviously people from our BU networks, whether they be peers or friends or students that or just our students that we've seen around Com, we've also reached out in networks like the PRC um, Agency Ready LinkedIn group, other webinar groups like the WPP Next Gen Leaders through just LinkedIn and PR Week Peace. We have had a lot of people reach out from different. The world. And I would say we have people from really every time zone. That's something that we like to say a lot mm, is that we cool. all around the world. 
So could you describe the kind of work you're doing and the types of clients that you have? You mentioned small business, obviously, and nonprofits, but what kind of work are you doing and what's the you know range of clients that, that you're seeing? Yeah, so um, what we really want to do is make sure that we're adding value and not taking away from what is at the heart of these organizations. So um, we really try to make sure that we're driven in empathy and understanding what our clients' needs are. So the way we start off is we essentially ask our clients, what's the problem? How can we help? And that is usually by them sending us their business objectives that they're trying to reach but can't get there. And then after they send those to us, we kind of craft these communications focused objectives, which obviously those lines are continuously blurred and they're so interconnected. So it really helps us have a narrowed in focus on these four services, which are media relations, social media, branding, and event planning. And all of these are so integrated. We're learning now as we grow, we're learning each day how we can really improve our agency. And we're seeing how those are so interconnected. You do one social media campaign, you're gonna have to bring in event planning and branding into it. And it's just really, cool to see. Yeah. So um, that's kind of how we've started off is we focus on those four areas, put together a scope of work, just like we've learned in our classes. And then we do this thing that we really like to call the audit, kind of looking at what the organization has done thus far in communications and how they can be better, what opportunities are there or threats that they may be missing. Yeah. (laughs) And um, the second favorite part of the audit that we like too is the target persona, because just as important as it is to know who your client is, you need to make sure you know their communities and their stakeholders as well, which we learned again (laughs) in our um, corporate comms class with Professor Fernandez. So those are the two parts that really help us get a better understanding. We're learning now too, that there's so much more to that, that we can be doing cultural context, understanding, you know, we call ourselves worldwide. Do we really encapsulate that? So all of these are learning processes, but the client's you know, they're coming from all over the world as well. We have clients in Hong Kong, in um, Nigeria, and then we have a bunch of national clients as well. Yeah, it's really exciting. New Jersey, Idaho, as well as in New York. Um, And it's a wide breadth. So there's some that are motivational speakers, empowerment groups, they're in the AR space, or we have design thinking coach. I mean, it's, you know, on the whole nine yards. That's basically- But but wait a minute, Mike. She said something, I said something that I find a little troubling, which is that she learned something in your classes. And, and- uh, (laughs) That happens. So go ahead, Mike. I'm sorry. I, you know, jokes are interrupted (laughs) here. (laughs) That that was too, that was too easy for you. Yeah, it was, it was. Just so that our listeners fully understand, so Empath Worldwide, the worldwide thing is really important because not only are your clients worldwide, but I believe also so is your network, your team, if you will, that's performing the work. Talk to us a little bit about how you arrange this to to be worldwide. I can speak to that. I think, you know, being that this agency started in a very virtual world, I think that there are less barriers for doing things globally because, you know, people don't really run on a typical schedule anymore. And we are more comfortable with meeting people over Zoom, people that we've never met before in person, just because that's the new normal. And in terms of how how do we operate as a worldwide agency? Well, we want to look at things like, 
you know, what are working hours for people? And instead of having, you know, you would clock in and say, oh, I'm going to work this many hours a week, <laughs> you're meeting deadlines for your deliverables. And in terms of meetings, we try to coordinate uh, different times to accommodate for different time zones. So something that we're doing is we have two meetings a month. So you would either go to one at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard or 5 p.m. Eastern Standard. And then with those kind of uh, vastly different times, it covers a time that is comfortable and not 2 a.m. for someone where they have to stay up really late or wake up really early to, you know, attend a team meeting and still be a part of that community. Because one thing that we really wanted to highlight to and something that we really make a focus of our kind of team is making sure that even though we are spread around the world is that we still have that that team mindset that people still feel like they're gaining something, not just in the terms of what they're working on and experience, but also networking with other really passionate uh, individuals around the world. So Mike, you, you focused on the second half of the name and that's an, that was fascinating to me. And Mike is right. You know, you started in Schenectady, New York as an agency in the past, you hope to get some local clients and then maybe you could, you know, branch out and, and the world has changed. First part of the name, empath, obviously derived from empathy, which you talked about, Maya, but it's also an acronym. Could you tell us what it stands for? Yeah, so it actually, the acronym spells out our core values. So that's engagement, mobility, passion, adaptability, tenacity, and honesty. And this was actually our favorite part about the agency. So we struggled with coming up for a, with a name. So for the longest time, when we were trying to recruit a team, we were emailing everyone an unnamed pro bono agency. Um, and actually, I think we reached out to Haley as well at the time um, and with the same subject line. But once we came up with that name, the core values was really easy to come up with because for so long we had learned about what are the really you know pillars of a successful communications agency that is thinking in this purpose-driven mindset and is obsessed with stakeholders, right? So that was kind of the approach we wanted to take where we're taking into account all the voices. And so engagement, of course, that is thinking about, you know, how can we make sure that every member of this organization, whether internal or external, is heard and valued. And then we have mobility, which is this empath worldwide. The global agency is kind of where that comes in. Passion, that was an easy one. I think you can see that. Um, if you look at our website and if you look at our social <laughs> media presence, passion is just spurring out because that's, I think, something about this generation that I really admire and I'm so glad to be a part of is that we love everything we do. Adaptability is this idea of like with the new normal, where are we in the world and how will we overcome where, what we're facing now with the sense of adaptability. And then tenacity, again, whole world stacked against us. We are in a time that we never thought we would be in. You know, with job offers and the internships, but we're still staying true to what we came into this industry for, which is that purpose-driven mindset. And then honesty, that one I think is like a given these days. If you don't have honesty as part of your core values, you're going to get called out for it. Um, and so that was probably the easiest one. I think we worked backwards on our acronym for sure. Here, 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 here. Yeah, that's great. So, so both of you have very unique backgrounds in order to get into this space. Um, and I, I'd just be interested to hear a little bit about each of your personal stories as to how you came to be interested in, in PR. Maya, I know your, your, your father uh, has been a creative in kind of the advertising world. And 
Geneve. Your parents were immigrants from China. But let me start with you, Maya, and then Geneve, if, you, if each of you can talk about, again, what really got you interested in, in, in PR and maybe even what kind of unique perspective each of you provides to the profession, particularly as, 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 as members of Gen Z. So Maya? Yeah, so um, this question has been something that I've actually been thinking about all summer, ever since I had time to go back into my high school bedroom and just really reflect on my time at BU, which honestly I sped through because um, I graduated a year early and as exciting as I thought that would be, it was also very uh, disorienting and disillusioning because I was like, wow, I just like zoomed through my college experience, but what actually did I do and what do I hope to do out of it? And so I had to spend some time thinking about what really made me feel alive when I I was in the classroom or at internships. And it was that purpose-driven mindset that I think the calm faculty and organizations that I was a part of and the students really helped me find my place in. And so that was one thing. And then also paired with that was, you know, like you mentioned, my dad is a creative, um, had some experiences in the industry as well. And to see how creativity and purpose-driven mindset could actually come together and make something really powerful, whether that be through the case studies we've seen in class or just hearing his stories, I thought, I want to be in that space. Yeah, maybe I'm not super artistically inclined. I can't really draw anything other than a stick figure, but I love the creative experience of strategizing, then bringing people together and brainstorming and trying to figure out a way to tell a story that really sticks. And I think that that is what I've learned I want to do in the industry, and I hope to bring people together. So that's why we call people on our team creatives is because even though they're not necessarily doing what you would traditionally think as creative, it's all a creative process. Yeah, I would say that's kind of where I really came in. Um, and also with my own multicultural background too, helped me with the global perspectives and being understanding of different cultures and being exposed to a global network at BU. But yeah, and I think our generation it carry, you know, they're part of all of that, the different cultures um, that we've learned, you know, that the Gen Z belongs to so many different groups now, and it's so hard. You can't really silo them anymore. Um, and then we're also very, we're, we're not afraid to call things out if they're not authentic. And so I think those two things are really what makes our generation and empath worldwide so unique. Talk a little bit about your, your own multicultural background and then also sitting there in, in LA or in Glendale, where it, it is a very diverse community. Yeah, so um, I grew up in a very, yeah, a very Armenian um, community. We call it our little Armenia. Um, and I went to an Armenian school, so I was constantly surrounded by that culture. And it really taught me this idea of the difference between assimilation and this difference of individuality. And trying to balance that out was a really big um, struggle for me. Also, I'm half Armenian, so I was also dealing with my other side of being Kazakh. And I've always had to deal with that duality. And so when I entered into BU, I felt like I could really be find my place in that duality. And so that's kind of that mindset is something that I want to make sure we bring into Empath Worldwide. We're bringing people from all over the world and we really want to make sure that they're not feeling like they have to silo again into this specific mold and feel like they have to westernize or, or whatever that may be, whatever they qualify as a bubble, that they can just take on their individuality with passion and um, not feel like it's this thing that they have to compromise in order to make an impact in their organization. So that's kind of what was a driving force. And I'm sure Geneve has had a similar experience as well. Yeah, Geneve, you've had you know, foot in two cultures, your parents from mm -hmm. Guangzhou. You grew up, though, in Boise, Idaho. How does that feed into all of this and in your interest in PR? 
So I had no idea what public relations was before I stepped foot on BU's campus. And <laughs> I think that it is so interesting because although I had no idea what it was, I'm one of those people who, as soon as I started studying it, this was the major for me because I really feel like I am naturally a communicator and I have always been able to, you know, really get people and what their message is. And I really wanted to make it a life goal to help people convey their messaging to the world. And like you mentioned, so my parents are immigrants from China and they actually own a Chinese restaurant. So I've grown up with a small business in my family. And my parents also did a lot of different things before they came to the US. And so they really encouraged that in me as well. Like they said, you know, you can be anything you want in the world. These are all different things you can explore. And I think being a communicator, what is so interesting is you get to work with a variety of clients and people in different fields. You get to work in everything, right? And it's a constantly changing, fast-paced environment, which is something I knew that I craved because if you've ever been to Boise, Idaho, that is exactly not that. It is very slow. And <laughs> Uh-oh. You know, <laughs> Letters from Boise now. My, we're going to get letters. <laughs> so I, you know, and I knew I wanted that, that fast paced and just coming from, um, I don't know what, something I did really enjoy and something I had dabbled in my junior year was design thinking. I was a member of this organization called, called One Stone. And when I was introduced to design thinking, I quickly realized that I always thought I wasn't an, an entrepreneur or forward thinking any, in anything. And I just like to do things the way that everybody else did. But design thinking really helped me to understand like empathy and us being empath worldwide. We are so rooted in empathy. I realized that without empathy, nothing you created really mattered in the world because you weren't really, you know, getting down to understand what people need. And so as a communicator and being in college for this is my fourth year now, I was always trying to find a way to bring back that passion that I had when I was working with the design thinking and merging it with my passion for, for public relations. And I wasn't sure if that even existed in the world. I was, you know, really trying to just do everything and that kind of got put on the back burner. But when we started doing work for Empath and we met with Divya, who's she owns uh, Savvy Sapiens, one of her clients who's a design thinking coach, helping young students to design think their lives and their careers. And I realized this is it. Like it was kind of this calling for me, right? This is where you get to merge together that previous passion for design thinking and this new passion I have for the communications world. And I really think it is the next thing and how we need to proceed forward in this field. That's great. I was going to ask you, is this the future of communications, do you think? Obviously, people are going to need all kinds of communications, but I just hearing you and, and understanding your passion about it, is this where public relations serves its highest value? I think so, because Right now, you're seeing different needs for for uh, our clients, small businesses and nonprofits. They're all very niche. And in order to maximize your results and what you're trying to, what impact you're trying to create for these clients, you really need to understand them as an organization as a whole, right? Really getting down to empathizing with them, seeing what their problems are, defining their issues and helping them create everything. And I think another thing I really appreciate about kind of this, you know, new forward thinking is it's not about doing everything right the first time. It's about having that back and forth communication. That's in our values too, right? That honesty. We want to be Absolutely. able to collaborate. It's not about we do something for you or you tell us what to do. It's about let's collaborate together to create something that we all are proud of. 
Oh, you're a, you're a purpose driven, I guess you could describe it, right? A, a organization. Personally, are either of you is there is there an issue or a concern or a social challenge that each of you are really passionate about and you'd like to do some work on? You know, I'm still trying to find that. I would, in all honesty, I'm tr- still yeah. trying to find the place where I feel like I want to really make my own individual impact there. But I've also learned that it's not just about me and that I don't, maybe if I don't know what I want to do as an individual in the social impact space, if I have a group or an organization like Empath Worldwide who is purpose-driven and just really wants to make an impact in communities, whether that be a specific type of community or just regionally or issue-based, and they just really want to support different communities on different levels, that that's where I can add value and just contribute to that rather than trying to pave my own path. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's kind of what I've learned through this process. And that's where we hope to take Empath Worldwide is that everyone can bring their, whether it be the clients or creatives, can bring their own passions and issues that they feel really passionate about to the agency and we can start making waves in those spaces connecting our clients to different organizations who are doing work Absolutely. in the community and build those bridges that's where this place i think where our agency can really add value and change the game um, is if we're not just trying to start something from scratch there are so many communities so many grassroots organizations that are already doing powerful meaningful work if we can just work with them and raise up and elevate their their initiatives then i think that that's where we can really be catalytic right be sort of a hub that's a catalyst yeah interesting i know mike's got some questions one thing that just as you were talking do you all think about competitors at all? Yeah, and let, let me pile on here because I think that the the other piece of this, right, is so this is this is born of the moment, right? mm-hmm. in the sense that so there's all of these nonprofits and small businesses struggling, and then you have these young professionals looking at this and saying, you know, we could actually help them and make a difference in the world and build out our own portfolios mm-hmm. in in the process, but. Fundamentally, Maya and Geneva, I'm sure you also have passion around trying to establish a business and do this in a for-profit way. What does that business model look like going forward? Where do you aspire to move Empath to? speak on, you know, where I see Empath in 10 years, and it doesn't have to be, you know, very specific, but the the role in the community that I want Empath to kind of play is to be a collective and a place where PR professionals are able to really do passionate work and give back to their communities. Because I remembered what it was like to have a place like that before I came to college. And I want PR professionals, you know, they're doing the same work nine to five every day, doing, you know, the same process. And I know that some, you know, sometimes you can get excited about certain clients or certain work that you're doing, but more often than not, you're just turning through the process, right? You're only one one cog in the wheel. And I, I want to reinstate that passion. And I want PR professionals to do more than just normal volunteer work but really be able to give those skills back and find that passion. Like that is my vision for Empath is that it's not mm-hmm. meant to be competing with all these agencies and being the next big agency. I want it to be a place of, of community for communications professionals. Yeah, and going off of that, that, you know, but first to answer Professor Schaffer's question about competitors, I haven't even characterized that or qualified them as competitors because <laughs> the beauty and, you know, you can, you can argue that we're naive, but I'll argue that we've just been really lucky to be in this industry at this moment when 
people are realizing that helping each other and collaborating with each other moves us further along and, and helps us push us forward. So actually, when we first, when, when we started growing and our agency landed the PR Week article or even before that, so many industry leaders were so eager to help out and so eager to hear our idea and give some advice and insights. And that was because we see this as a cause that we are all a part of. We are not seeing this, again, just like Janice said, necessarily as just a business first. Um, this is a way of us trying to support the industry and support the communities that our clients are a part of. And so I don't, yeah, like I said, I don't see them as competitors, but I do know that there are a lot of agencies that are doing things like this. A lot of consortiums have been created. A lot of organizations have pro bono pieces now that they're working on. And that's really inspiring. And, you know, maybe that's that's part of it too, is that we are helping organizations do that as well. It's not just about Empath Worldwide. And so hopefully we want to continue to partner with groups like that. And when we look at the business model of that, I think that's where we can really create a business in a sense is by keeping pro bono at the core of what we do and helping organizations who want to enter the pro bono space and the space of doing for good work, because that's the Latin translation for pro bono. It's not just about free work, um, is to help these agencies and organizations organizations who are trying to enter that space and guide them and consult them from a perspective of a um, you know worldwide agency focused you know heavily on the Gen Z and then also with this purpose-driven mindset that's where we kind of see this becoming more of an established agency and in ways that we can eventually try to help support ourselves as an operation. So you see yourselves a little bit as a convener, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Where, where you'll work with corporations, maybe like you know the, the, the companies we used to work with, and helping them then work with uh, various nonprofits and whatnot to do good in the world. To me, that sounds a, terrific. And, you know, by the way, Mike, you know, you remember when you run a big team or you have an organization, I think there's a lot of learning that you could bring to those organizations as well, too, for particularly for some of the junior members of the team, but everyone on the team to listen to your story, which is inspiring, amazing. Uh, I really, I, I mean it. And, and uh, I would say I'm, I'm a professor of the faculty at BU and you know, not every day you show up do you see the fruits of the work that we're, we're doing, but this is a clear, I mean, it's inspiring to me, and I'm so proud of what you're doing, I, and I wish you the best. And as your, and as your you. former professor, I am too. Yeah, exactly. And I, I know you got, I joke about Mike, but he's, he's the best. So listen, yes. thank you for taking the time on the crux today. Here's thank what you. you get out of this. You, you're going to get some highly coveted crux t-shirts and coffee mugs that we will send Yay. to you, you know? So, yeah, and and Geneve, please walk around campus with your Crux t-shirt and get us a little, you know, little play among <laughs> your fellow students. But thank you very, very much for being on the Crux. This is really inspiring and terrific. And congratulations to both of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for hearing our story and letting mm -hmm. us share it with the rest of the world. We are so thankful for this opportunity. Thank you. We're very proud of it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>